The band spent February rehearsing Leuven Brothers tunes alongside Dylan numbers. McGuinn had chosen two songs from Dylan's bootlegged basement tapes to bookend the album, and they filled in the middle with songs by Merle Haggard, the Leuven Brothers, and Woody Guthrie. Parsons wrote two songs for the album, the forward-looking One Hundred Years From Now and the backward-looking Hickory Wind, and brought in a song by Stax artist William Bell, You Don't Miss Your Water, that had been recorded by Bell and Otis Redding. Parsons and Hillman worked it over into a country tune with Parsons on lead vocals. In fact, Parsons was taking lead vocals on half the album's tracks, and McGuinn hadn't contributed a single original song. In March, they packed up for a week's worth of recording sessions in Nashville, including an appearance at the Grand Ole Opry. Even with fresh haircuts and muted versions of their usual hippie attire, the birds were clearly not welcome at the staunchly traditional Opry. The crowd welcomed them with taunts of Tweet, tweet! and Cut your hair! but warmed a little after a rendition of Merle Haggard's Sing Me Back Home. By the time host Tom Paul Glazer announced they'd be following it with Life in Prison, another Haggard classic, the Opry audience was ready to give these freaks a chance. Amid the applause, Graham Parsons seized the mic. We're not going to do that tonight, he informed the audience. We're going to do a song for my grandmother, who used to listen to the Grand Ole Opry with me when I was little. It's a song I wrote called Hickory Wind. Powerless to stop this unauthorized change of programming, Tom Paul Glazer stormed off the stage. In the wings, country legend Roy Acuff fumed, fuzzy from the joint the birds had shared backstage. McGuinn hit the opening chords and looked on at irrefutable evidence. Graham Parsons had hijacked his band. After returning to L.A. to finish recording Sweetheart, the birds traveled to London for a handful of shows. Parsons wanted to take the entire Nashville session band along, including the bulky pedal steel. But McGuinn and Hillman balked at the cost. After one of the shows at Middle Earth, a hazy, psychedelic club in a Covent Garden basement that played host to bands like Pink Floyd, Captain Beefheart, and The Pretty Things. McGuinn's friends Mick Jagger and Keith Richards led the birds on a trek to Stonehenge, accompanied by a bottle of Johnny Walker Red. As the bottle went around, McGuinn explained that on the advice of South African singer Miriam Makeba, they'd decided to tour South Africa to witness apartheid for themselves. McGuinn had been assured they'd be playing for integrated audiences. Equal parts awed by the Stones and nervous about the racial politics of playing in South Africa, Graham Parsons approached Keith Richards with his doubts about the upcoming tour. We wouldn't go, Richards flatly replied. Whether it was a heartfelt belief, a growing fear of flying, a schoolboy crush on the stones, or pure petulance that certain of his demands regarding the tour had not been met, Parsons never showed up at the airport. McGuinn fired him on the spot, and Hillman, who thought he'd found an ally in the young upstart, 
was livid. The birds announced they were looking for a new guitarist, and leaving Parsons with the stones, departed from Heathrow for Johannesburg as a three-piece. The tour was disastrous. The band arrived to learn they were playing to segregated audiences, an entirely black audience one night, an entirely white audience the next, and returned to Europe to find themselves vilified in the European press, attacked as racists and hypocrites. Honestly hurt by the accusations, McGuinn nearly suffered a nervous breakdown. The band sustained serious financial losses of a questionable nature, attributable to their new business manager, Larry Spector, who had recently been given access to the band's accounts. They returned to L.A., physically drained, emotionally damaged, and mentally exhausted.